Welcome to the Old Galway Diary Podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Tom, uh, I got that book on Sikkim. Thank you. And uh, I didn't see I didn't see a mention of my my friend Patrick Ford, the founder of the Irish World newspaper in New York. But, uh, you know, the Fords could all be the same family for all I know. And I wonder, do, the, do they know of their illustrious relation? Uh, but anyway, I did enjoy the book very, very much. You're absolutely right. Uh, it's a beautifully produced book on a very special street tucked away there behind Wood Key. You'd hardly know it <laughs> unless you came across it by accident, you know. That's right. Yeah. 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 That's lovely. Yeah. Well, that's what I, I'm actually writing about this week <coughs> is Sikkim. Um, and again, inspired by the book to do so, uh, Durkin Ford's book. The um, I have an old photograph. It actually predates Durkin's time, uh, but it's it, it, it's a very evocative photograph, and uh, it will fill quite a number of people with nostalgia. I think. Yeah. Uh, Donovan's Ordnance Survey Letters from 1839, which are an extraordinarily valuable resource for anybody researching their local area. Uh, he talks about Sukkin, and he spells it S-U-C-K-I-N-E. Right. It's now pronounced Sukkin, yeah. uh, which is out of satirical humor, frequently called Sukkin the Malacht, which <laughs> means, of course, Sukkin of the curses or sif- right. of the imprecations. Oh, dear. Uh, I'm not quite <laughs> sure why that is, uh, and he doesn't give any reason for it. Yeah. But he, he, he did say that it was written... Uh, Sikkim Dyke in the name book and described as lying where the road from Galway to Menlo crosses the flooded land at Kurlock. Now, the word Sikkim means dyke, in fact, uh, which may refer, the above may refer to dyke road. And also it, it probably brings us back to the time when Wood Key, as we know today, was yeah. all underwater. Yes. And uh, that, that the buildings that are now along Wood Key weren't there at the time that it was Sikkim was on the water side. Uh, it's spelt in all kinds of different ways in old maps. Uh, but in more recent times, it's described as St. Brendan's Avenue. Uh, there are some who think that the, <coughs> the name related to dairy farming. Now, dairy farming was very important on this street. Uh, and that the it was an essential part of life there, really, and that it came from the term suckler calf, uh, right. probably see. leading, uh, you know, being refined to sucking and then yes, to sicking. Yes, that makes sense. Uh, 
Yeah, some some call it railway view. Uh, obviously, the uh, Galway Clifton railway line passed over the end of the street, and uh, uh, others call it St Brendan's Avenue, but all the locals refer to it as Sikkim, and I think always will. Yeah. Now, as I say, a lot of the people on the street kept dairy cattle. Uh, Durkin refers to this in the book, uh, his father included. They would have had fields on the Hedford Road, and a couple of times a day they would have brought the cattle to Sikkim to milk them uh, in their backyards, in their sheds, that kind of thing, uh, which meant constant cleaning of the sheds and yards and, of course, of the street as well. Uh, and uh, when there were fair days in the square and later in Fair Green, uh, a lot of farmers from the Anglingham area, they would walk their cattle up through Sikking on their way to the square. So there was very often major cleanups to be done on the street. And anyway, my photograph uh, this week is, it dates from about 1940. Uh, it, it was purely residential, as you can see. Uh, <clears throat> and in the photograph, it, uh, I have names on a lot of the houses and so on. Well done, well uh, done. And it, it kind of predates Durkin uh, and, <laughs> and his uh, book. Now, as you say, his book is just wonderful. It's a joy. It's a gem. It's a delightful portrait of the street, I think. Yes. That he grew up in. And yeah. He, yeah, he talks about all the families and the characters. There are just lovely portraits of the people of the street. And yes. it's full of nostalgia, but it's not... It's not fawning stuff at all. There are no pretensions whatsoever about this book. Uh, there are a lot of photographs, and I think it's just a charming record of times past in Sikkim. And the other lovely thing about this new production is that all of the proceeds <laughs> will go to the Comfort Fund in University Hospital Galway, where Durkin passed away. And right. I think that's not... it's. The, the family are being very generous in reprinting the book and making it available to many people who couldn't get it before, but also in memory of Durkin by donating money to the hospital fund. That's lovely. So I think it's a special book, really. And uh, that's me for this week. Okay, Tom, I, I, well, you know, I think if we do nothing else but, you know, bring back that kind of intimacy about the city or the town we live in, we're not doing anything right at all because these are the real stories of Galway. And uh, it's wonderful when someone takes the trouble to record them yeah. and put them on. I, I agree. I just love it. I just love yeah. It. Of course you agree because it's yeah so, yeah he talks you yeah know, he talks about his 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 school days in St Brendan's yeah. which of course was in Sikking back That's down right. to Sikking as yeah. well yeah he didn't have very far to go no no you know? yeah and and incidentally I often think it's time that uh, somebody wrote a history of that school while it's still in living memory you know well said anyway. Yes, okay. Well, they might hear your message and they might yeah. do so. Tom, that's great as always. I'm looking forward to seeing that photograph. 
because I'm very fond of Sikkim. <laughs> I often walk down and get my car key cleaned or something like that down in Wood Key. I make an effort in walking through the entire lane <laughs> because I just enjoy the small houses that are still there, even though they're now becoming very glamorized and upmarket. But nevertheless, there still is a feeling of a village in that street, which I like very much. Yes, yeah, you're quite right. Yeah. yeah. Tom, yeah. listen, I am writing more now about Anne O'Riordan's excellent book on East Galway land agitation. And um, I mentioned last week uh, about the burning of the house. Uh, but this week, I'm just going to follow that story on because it's, it's, it's really is, I feel, I feel very interesting. And by taking one example of one's house or one particular landlord, I think you, you get the whole story of the county and what it was like at the time. Because remember, Tom, that in the 1870s, the entire land of County Galway, the entire land of County Galway was owned by about 200 landlords. There was no private ownership of land by the people who worked it, by the tenants yeah, themselves. Yeah. So you can imagine then when uh, the Wyndham Act of 1903, which was absolutely revolutionary, um, yeah. it really was extraordinary. George Wyndham was a friend of Arthur Balfour. Arthur Balfour was Chief Secretary of Ireland at the end of the 1870s, at the end of the 1880s. And he walked around uh, Connemara, I told that story again last week, North Connemara into Mayo, and spoke to the people. And he saw immediately that the land problem in Ireland was the cause, the root cause of so much ill feeling and so much, you know, misery, because the people had no control over their lives, no, because they had to pay rent. And the landlord could put up the rent when he felt like it, and he often did because he was in trouble himself with bad weather and crop failures. Uh, he thought my tenants would keep keep me going, and uh, you know they were good for another few shillings on the rent, which of course was a was crippling. And uh, then a friend of Balfour, uh, George Wyndham, who went with him on that walkabout, actually, he was appointed uh, chief secretary, I'm sure with Balfour's influence, and he introduced this swinging act, the Wyndham Land Act of 1903, which totally turned on its head land ownership. It was absolutely extraordinary. Now, an unintended consequence of that act, however, Tom, was that tenants were certainly eager and willing to buy the land they had farmed on all their life. And if their landlord was slow or reluctant to sell, they were quite prepared to bring pressure to bear. And having been yeah. deprived of land ownership for so long, understandably, tenants were land hungry. Now, the Wyndham Act excited an extraordinary social revolution across Ireland culminating in the transfer of approximately 75% of Irish land uh, from landlords to tenant occupiers by 1914. In only 11 years, Tom, 75% of Irish land was transformed, was, tra was transferred to the tenant. What an extraordinary revolution that was. I mean... Yeah. I think the French Revolution was 10 years in, in the making. This was 11 years and it achieved a remarkable turnaround. Uh, 
But many landlords, Tom, saw the winds of change that were coming and were glad to sell out. Others, however, chose to stay and to see what happens. But life for many of them was not good. If they had enjoyed the good life in preceding generations, that was now rapidly going to change. The East Galway RIC monthly reports detail illegal incidents on those landlords slow to make up their minds. Cattle drives took place on the Earl of Westmeath's Earl's Park farm near Loch Ray, and at at O'Kelly's of Ballycrisane, and at Walter Joyce's land at Cogare near Mount Bellio, animals were, were injured and cattle were maimed, I'm sad to say, as they were on the Lewis estate in Ballinagar and at Ellen Park Farm near Loch Ray. Gates were stolen, uh, walls were knocked, uh, there were assaults, trees were damaged, as well as wholesale intimidation. So it was not to be ex- surprised or to be unexpected that the tenants were land hungry. And suddenly, with the offer of land there, except if the, if the landlord was unwilling to sell, they felt really they had a, a rightful expectation of that land being divided among them. So they felt they were justified in bringing this kind of pressure. Now, I hate anything to do with cruelty to animals, but it, it, it did sting the landlord where it hurt. Now, all of these properties that were being damaged and that the tenants were, you know, intimidating the landlord were all close to Ballydugan. And Michael Henry Burke was well aware of what his fellow landlords were experiencing. Now, during the War of Independence, the RIC barracks, Tom, were attacked and burned on a regular basis, resulting in the RIC, the local police constabulary, retreating into larger barracks in the towns and the cities. Many rural areas were now without police protection. And during the Civil War, imagine 275 landlord houses were burnt across the state. And that was an extreme form of intimidation and a warning which was not lost on Burke, I can assure you. But... (laughs) Also, it was very well organized, the intimidation, because a Lochray publican, Patrick Hanrahan, failed to adhere to the boycott on Burke, and he did not heed a warning letter, which he received from a, a mysterious body of men. And when he did not heed that letter, his premises were also set alight. So that was the situation facing Burke. His immediate problem was nearer to home, however. Playing for time, he offered 60 acres of his 1,570-acre estate to be sold. But this was refused by the tenants until an additional land nine-acre area and the Southgate Lodge, occupied by Michael Dempsey and family, were also presented for sale. Burke absolutely refused. He couldn't stand this guy, Dempsey. And the nine, he felt the nine acres would allow Dempsey living permanently next to the wood, which he said was only a few yards from his house. Also, it was becoming clear that Dempsey was the ringleader in much of the intimidation that was making Burke's life so, such a misery. Dempsey, along with John Costello, who resided at the Westgate Lodge, worked together to make Burke's life as difficult as possible. Now, Dempsey was illegally accessing more of Burke's land by the week 
And he sometimes put his own livestock on Burke's land without permission uh, from either Burke or his agent. And local sources told Anne O'Reardon how Dempsey drove off Burke's large store cattle, sold them as his own cattle before returning to Burke's land, much younger and lighter yearlings. So really, they had Burke boxed into a corner, or at least they thought they had. In 1920, Tom, Burke experienced persistent trespassing by stock on his estate, while still being described as being strictly boycotted. He sought advice from his solicitor on how to handle the relentless trespassing by stock on his land. And he was advised that it was within his rights to impound the, the, the stock and the cattle that were put on his land, but concluded that only when the owners could be identified could legal proceedings uh, happen. And of course, the tenants refused to identify who the owners of the cattle were, and Burke was met with a conspiracy of silence. There was also a constant fear that the IRA were now backing Dempsey's attempt to force Burke to sell his land. The audacity of Dempsey left Burke pretty well powerless. His strong-willed character, and he was a very awkward man, and single-mindedness was now matched only by the equally determined Dempsey, who was getting bolder by the day. Now, although to me some of these instances seem amusing, they were not amusing at the time, and Burke must have felt dangerously isolated. You see, a number of death threats were instigated by Dempsey, including one totally, what you hear this time, bizarre and terrifying incident, when one night men rushed into Burke's bedroom in his house and fired a shot close to his head. Burke described the incident in writing, then pointing their rifle towards my stomach made me sign a paper while Dempsey dictated his terms. He forcibly broke up my best meadow paddock the next day and put as many stock on my land as he chose, and there was nothing I could do about it. Now, there is no record of Burke reporting this incident to the RIC, but the nature of the attack on Burke in his home was not isolated. 35 miles away from Ballydugan, Captain Wally and H.L. King at Belmont and forbade in County Offaly were visited in a similar manner by armed men who forced them to sign letters stating that they would divide up their respective lands among the tenants. Then there was the murder of Frank Shaw Taylor, who grazed about a thousand acres near Athenry. Shaw Taylor was a unionist. He had earlier rejected a deputation of his tenants who sought the distribution of his lands. So assaults and threats such as these were not taken lightly, I can tell you. And many of the landlords capitulated, sold their estates and moved away. Now, Burke really gets not frightened because he's a man that doesn't get frightened. He just gets more stubborn. And um, because the RIC barracks had closed locally, uh, he, he petitioned to get a party of British cavalry to be stationed at Ballydugan to protect his property. Now, this actually was a mistake, as the presence of British soldiers 
alerted the nearby Irish volunteers who instigated a series of watches, noting the movements of troops. One volunteer actually went to visit Ballydugan, pretending to be interested in some new kind of sheep dipping pool, where in fact he sketched the layout of the place. The intention was, Tom, that the volunteers would disarm the guard while the majority were out exercising their houses and set fire to the stables. But before the volunteers had finalised the plan of attack, the troopers upped and left the estate. So Burke was more and more isolated. And uh, having troops there sort of gave the signal to the Irish volunteers and to the general community that Burke, in fact, was forcibly going to continue to run his estate in the traditional way, in the way that his family had run it for nearly 400 years. He was prepared to give another 300 acres, and that was final. So we now have that situation where the lines had been drawn in the sand, as it were, had been drawn on his land, and he was not for turning. And as I said last week, During the second week of June, 1922, Burke left to attend to some business in Dublin. And in the early hours of Friday, June the 15th, 1922, men broke into his house, set fire to it, and he returned to a burnt out ruin. But Tom, you might have gathered, he was not for turning. Even being absolutely reduced, uh, his house that he had treasured, that had his several generations of furniture and treasures inside it were totally destroyed. His wife ran out and his maids ran into hiding in the outbuildings. Burke just took uh, the stock of the burnt out ruin and said, I will not be smoked out. This story of this extraordinary man, I'll continue next week, Tom, because Anna Reardon's excellent book, uh, it just reads like a novel, actually. It's hard to believe this is actually... So I leave it there, Tom. Yeah, looking forward to that. Okay, it's a great story. It's a great—I mean, it's a terrifying story, but it is part of our history. I know quite a few landlords did stay on, actually, Um, but of course their power was broken. Their power was totally oh yeah, eradicated, and they really felt themselves that they sold a lot of land. I mean. They had to sell land. They had to keep selling it. So their way of life, their, uh, as I said last week, the tribal, you know, way they entertained themselves with hunting and balls and intermarriage and things like that, all that was gone. Yeah. Now, yeah. We, we, we came from a nation of landlords to becoming a nation of farmers. Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> In 11 years. In 11 years. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, yeah. Tom. Will we leave it there? Okay. Until next week, so Ronnie. Yeah. I look forward to it. Well done. As always. Okay. Yeah.